what's up witches and warlocks and weirdos i don't know i'm still figuring it out okay this is only episode seven of the new england gothic so last week was part one of my series called the witches who lived and today's obviously gonna be part two but before we dive into part two and the witch of the day i just had a couple notes and I just want to do like a little two second update corner, I guess, and just follow up on last week's episode because I made a video about this story and it kind of blew up on TikTok. So it just seems like some details weren't super clear and I just wanted to clear up those questions and then I totally forgot to add a super important detail. So I'm just going to do that really quick. Okay, ready, go. So I know we mentioned that Margaret Atwood did dedicate The Handmaid's Tale to her ancestor, Mary Webster, aka Half-Hanged Mary, but what I forgot to mention was that Margaret Atwood also wrote a really famous poem called Half-Hanged Mary, obviously about her ancestor. There's a line at the end of the poem that I just really like. It goes like this. Before I was not a witch, but now I am one. Ooh, it just gives me chills because that can be interpreted in so many ways. Like, before I was not a witch, meaning she was never a witch, but now I am one in the eyes of my community because they never gave her a moment of peace. Poor Mary Webster's whole life, basically, she was just tormented by the townspeople. But that could also be interpreted in the way, before I was not a witch, but now I am one, almost like she was resurrected from her near-death experience, and now... She has some sort of magical powers and she is a witch. I don't know. I like the mystical side of things, obviously. But yeah, I just wanted to add that in. I also wanted to verify because it's really easy to get these stories confused, especially because Cotton Mather is involved. But Mary Webster happened years before the Salem witch trials and over 100 miles away. So just wanted to verify that information. And... Before we lead into our next witch who survived, I want to mention one other thing that was brought up by a few commenters. Just the fact that most of the witch trial victims in general probably would have never self-identified as a witch. The way we think about witches these days is obviously different than it was back then. So these people who were accused of witchcraft, a lot of them were just healers or clairvoyants, which is, it was like really popular to be a town clairvoyant. I've heard a few stories of them. They were astrologers. They were just, you know, herbalists, midwives. They weren't identifying as a witch. They just did those things. And over time, those things became less accepted. So yes, while there is a tie between witch accusations and those activities these people weren't consciously like yeah i'm so witchy i'm gonna do astrology today hashtag witch talk it's not like today in fact most of these people would have identified as christian or did very much strongly identify as christian like in the case of mary webster our witch today is also just a cranky old lady who was poor and people just didn't like her because she was cranky old and poor and i can relate to that because i'm cranky kind of old and poor so let's you know. However, I want to note a really big difference in Our Witch Today and Mary Webster. So Our Witch Today is 
Hannah Crana. She is definitely a, more of a folk legend, I think, than Mary Webster because I had heard the story of Hannah Crana before. So Hannah Crana's story actually takes place much after the Salem witch trials hysteria ended. All the witch hysteria in general has ended and is seen at this point as kind of an embarrassment. I mean, let's be honest, you just tried and killed a bunch of innocent people. Yeah, it's a little more than embarrassing. So Hannah Crana uses her reputation as a witch for her own personal gain. But there are a few similarities to Mary Webster's story. You will just see. Let me just tell the story. It's, it's a great story. It's a good folk legend. Her story has a lot more mystical folklore elements to it. I super love this story a lot. But yeah, I just want you to go into this story with the mindset of this is happening much, much later than Salem, much later than Mary Webster. And at this point, people have chilled out about the witch accusations. But I will say there's still always the risk. I mean, even today. I'm sure if you keep up with the news or social media, you are aware that religious extremists have been taking things to a new level, a new dangerous level. We see religious extremists protesting drag events, and we are seeing a resurgence in violence in general in this country, and it's being led by these religious conservative extremists. And we also have to remember the satanic panic of the 80s. That wasn't that long ago. So it seems like as a country, at least, I'm sure other countries probably relate, but at least in the United States, since the founding of the United States, we go through these cycles of religious extremism and people being persecuted for being different, for being outcasts, for not adhering to their very specific conservative religious whatever standard. I know I'm ranting, but just keep this in mind when we are telling stories of women who are accused of witchcraft because we can learn a lot from history. We don't want to see a repeat of this. I sure as hell don't. So that being said, Hannah Crana's story takes place over 100 years after Salem. So she uses her witch reputation for her own personal gain, which you will see. Note that she was risking her safety by flaunting her reputation. Like Mary Webster, there was no trial or formal governing body that declared Hannah Crana a witch. But people very easily could have taken up arms against her and formed a lynch mob like they did in the case of Mary Webster. So definitely keep that in mind. I know I'm kind of joking. You'll see once we get into the story, she's funny. Like she's petty. She girl bosses her way into getting what she wants with her witch reputation. But keep it in mind, like that was a risk for her. And thus concludes my little rant. Now let's get into the story of the famous Hannah Crana. But not before I take a big gulp of coffee because I need to be caffeinated. I wake up super fucking early and uh, that's why I relate to these cranky ladies, you know? I'm pretty cranky too. So like I mentioned, this is taking place much later than the Salem Witch Trials and it's also taking place outside of Massachusetts. This happens in Monroe, Connecticut, which is home to the famous ghost hunters and in my opinion, scammers, Ed and Lorraine Warren, which... Maybe we'll talk about them on another episode, but it seems like they were absolutely horrible people. But yeah, I don't know. Look that up. Like Google it. You're going to be really shocked. So Monroe, Connecticut is home to the famous possessed Annabelle doll. And obviously our witch of the day, Hannah Crana. Okay. So Hannah's life. 
Hannah was born in 1783 and married Captain Joseph Hovey. They had no children. So again, similar to Mary Webster, a woman with no children. I'm going to circle back to that point because the no children thing is a huge part of the witch accusation, and I'll explain why. So according to most accounts, her reputation as a witch didn't begin until her husband died mysteriously one night. So according to the legend, pretend I have some candles lit, okay? Let's set the scene. According to the legend, one night Captain Hovey went out for a walk where his own wife supposedly bewitched him into a daze. In his confusion, he fell off a cliff and plummeted to his death. No one believed that Captain Hovey, I don't know, maybe he was just drunk or didn't feel well or had vertigo. I don't know. I get vertigo. I very easily could fall off a cliff and no one would think that I was bewitched. I don't know. I'm just clumsy though. So they found his death very suspicious. They said, there's no way that this captain would have just fallen on his own. It's not a freak accident. So some locals even came forward and said they saw Hannah communing with the devil that very night. So this wretched town gossip birthed the nickname that Hannah would have forevermore for all eternity at this point, because we're still calling her Hannah Crana. So you may be wondering, what does Crana mean? Because I had no idea. So Crana is a Gaelic word, actually, that refers to a rock or an island. So according to the town gossip, it was said that Hannah's house was perched high on a hill where she could gaze down upon the townsfolk. There was said to be a very large rock or boulder on her property, and they said after the night her husband died, this big rock had cloven footprints embedded inside it alongside a woman's footprints. So it was believed that this rock was where Hannah danced with the devil and bewitched her husband. So Hannah never remarries. She lives alone on her property with chickens, and supposedly the property is guarded by snakes. And... She is said to always wear all black widow's clothing every day. So basically, she's just this cool goth chick with her chickens in her house, guarded by snakes. Again, she sounds fucking cool. Like, would you hang out with the old goth lady with the snakes and the chickens? I absolutely would. It's like looking in a mirror. I'm probably going to end up this lady. Hannah Crana did get along well with some of her neighbors, but with others, not so much. So... Hannah's legend is so funny to me because her like quote unquote witchcraft is so petty. It's, it's honestly very funny. So unfortunately, because it is the 1800s, by the time Hannah's husband died and because she never remarried, she was now impoverished. She was not above using her reputation as a witch to extort people. Like I told you earlier, she like is living for this. She's basically threatening to hex people if they don't give her food and firewood. Again. I don't know. This is just something I feel like I would do. (laughs) So legends are growing up all around her that she's this witch. She's cursing her neighbors. There was another neighbor. This is so funny. This is so petty. There is a neighbor who was really famous for her baking skills, and she was supposedly cursed by Hannah Crana. It was said she refused to give Hannah a large pie, so Hannah supposedly put a spell on her, and the neighbor's pies were never good again. Like, imagine... Imagine someone just doesn't give you a pie, so you curse them, and now they can't bake good pies anymore. So petty. According to another local tale, a young man trespassed on her property to fish for trout in her creek. She caught him, cursed him, and he never caught another fish again. We have a third tale about Hannah Crana supposedly using witchcraft against her neighbors, and this tale is pretty similar to the Mary Webster story, 
where it was claimed that animals would not go past her house. So in this specific tale, supposedly two men are driving an ox cart that stops in front of her house. So they make fun of her. It says they were mocking her and she comes out and claims to bewitch them and all the wheels fall off the cart. So let's fast forward to a gloomy winter day in 1859. Hannah Crana's beloved pet rooster, Old Boreas, dies. A neighbor who Hannah Crana was actually close with claims that Old Boreas was her familiar, and because they were intertwined magically and physically, Hannah believed that after her rooster died, she would die soon as well. And she started to tell the neighbor her last wishes, and she said, you need to listen carefully, and these need to be done exactly as I say. She instructed that her coffin be carried to her grave by hand, not by cart. She also insisted that she must be buried before sundown. The old witch Hannah Crana was right in her morbid prediction. She did in fact die very shortly after her beloved familiar. As they went to bury her, it was snowing very heavily, and rather than follow her final wishes... The funeral party decided it would be easier to pull her casket across the snow on a sled. But as the procession started toward the cemetery, the coffin slipped off the sled and slid all the way back to her front door. Already annoyed because in this time, she obviously doesn't have children. She was obviously an outcast in her neighborhood, in her community. They don't really want to be doing this anyway. So now they have to deal with her coffin just sliding, just sliding away. Just, you know, coffin slides. And I hate to be a buzzkill and interject in the middle of telling the lore, but I wanted to note that I don't really think they would have tried to bury someone in the middle of winter, especially if it was snowing, because the ground would be frozen. And usually people would be put in holding crypts or like vaults above the ground until spring or the ground thawed. So I don't know, we'll see. So they try over and over again to pull the casket on a sled and they just can't. So eventually they think, okay, maybe she really did bewitch us because we're not listening. So we're going to follow her instructions and we're going to carry her by hand. This is winter in New England. It's snowing. They are getting really tired. They are trudging through thick blankets of fresh New England snow. And by the time they finally reach Hannah Crana's final resting place, the sun had set. So once again, her demands have been brushed off and she was placed underground regardless. At this point, the townspeople, you know, they've had enough of Hannah Crana's shit in life. They are not dealing with her anymore. She is now dead. She's underground. They're done, okay? They're exhausted. They're feeling relieved probably to be rid of the town witch. Or so they think. So as they make their way back to Hannah's property, they discover it completely engulfed in flames. I, again, another moment where I would love to be a fly on the wall. I would love to see the look on these men's faces as they realize they may never truly ever be rid of the supposed wicked witch of Monroe, Hannah Crana. Today, Hannah Crana lies beneath a gravestone that perches right over the road in Gregory's Four Corners Burial Ground on Spring Hill Road, where... This is a big urban legend. I see a lot of people visiting Hannah Crana's grave and telling this story. Supposedly, the specter of a woman can be seen standing in the middle of the road, causing unsuspecting drivers to swerve and crash right into the graveyard. And that is the legend of Hannah Crana, the Wicked Witch of Monroe. 
I definitely wanted to include Hannah Crana in this series because although she never had a formal witch trial, I thought it was a more lighthearted contrast to the Mary Webster story, which is just really depressing. It's honestly so depressing. And because this tale is a little bit short and sweet, I just wanted to, you know, go on like a historical rant about, I just kind of want to set the scene a little bit more to kind of open people's minds to what really was going on during the time when all these people were being accused of witchcraft. And this is spanning over a couple hundred years at this point. If you think about it, Mary Webster's case took place in the 1600s, whereas Hannah Crana died in the late 1800s. So big time difference here. So like I've mentioned in both episodes, folk magic was a thing. Let's talk about folk magic. So for a long time, the Christian church coexisted peacefully with folk magic and even incorporated magical practices into their religious traditions. There was actually a point where the church kind of taught the idea that any person could wield supernatural powers through rituals, but because the supernatural wasn't being placed specifically in God's hands, that it became a problem. So they're not even denying folk magic as a thing. They're just saying, no, 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 you can't do folk magic. You can only do magic if it's putting the power in God's hands. So then over time, even though the folk magic and Christianity coexisted, it became no longer accepted. But folk magic flourished in the colonies for a very long time, and even after it wasn't accepted anymore, people continued to practice this magic to heal themselves, to protect themselves, and they would like hex each other too. So that's kind of where this fear of Hannah Crana might have came from. You know, people really still believed that people held magical powers. They really believed that Hannah Crana really could bewitch them or hex them. And like I said earlier, I wanted to circle back and talk about how these two witches we've just talked about were both childless and how that plays into their stories. Because back in the day, it was very common for childless people to be accused of witchcraft. They thought it was demonic not producing enough children, not even like not producing children. If you don't have enough children, people would be considered witches because it was a sign of disrespect to their community and their religion, which in the time relied very heavily on child rearing. So we've got the combination of childless women who are impoverished, they're not nice, and they're supposedly still partaking in quote traditional like folk magic or healing and the other thing is the way these communities are set up everyone is living so close together and no one really leaves where are you gonna go you know no one's oh you know what i'm gonna take a little drive down to newport rhode island to see the ocean today no they all live in their little community all their houses are super close together and they're in each other's business all day every day and let's be honest humans have always always been nosy and humans have always gossiped so what is what else is there really to talk about and do during these times you know what are you going to talk about while while you're toiling away you're going to gossip about the town outcast and at the end of the day that's just how a lot of these legends are born that's kind of the gist of it you know you guys know what i'm saying so yeah that being said Again, this is part two of, I'm going to try and make it a three-part series, but the third witch I was going to cover, the story is genuinely just really short, and maybe I'll make a third episode that covers multiple short witch stories, um, but it's like a five-minute thing, so 
I might hold off on part three. I'm so sorry. But in exciting news, I'm going to record my first segment, like listener segment called Listener Lore. That's what I'm going to call it. Every podcast that I listen to usually does a couple episodes here and there where they read submissions or they have a segment where they read submissions. And I really love that. I always want to listen to those. So I figured, why not make my own? I'm going to call it Listener Lore. I've already got incredible submissions. I know people who I would have never guessed would ever come forward with these types of stories. And some of them have me like goosebumps, chill to the bone. And the fun part about Listener Lore is it's going to be not limited to just New England. It's You can submit a story from anywhere at this point, honestly. All of my stories I tell are going to be New England-based, but... If you have a spooky experience, regardless of where you're from or where it happened, I would love to hear it. I would love for listener lore to maybe be a monthly thing to start, maybe weekly eventually. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how many stories I get. So definitely send me an email at thenewenglandgothic at gmail.com. It's just the New England Gothic. We're also on Instagram, the New England Gothic. And again, that is just the New England Gothic, one word, no periods, no spaces, nothing. And I'm also on TikTok. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, my Mary Webster video kind of blew up a little bit. And I do try to make a video to coincide with each episode because, you know, I want to put the word out there. So if you want to see my face, I guess, while I tell these...